You know, unless you're making it at home, brunch has disappeared. Welcome to No More Normal. I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. What has disappeared from our lives, good or bad, during the pandemic? Here at Nomono headquarters, we are asked what's going, going, gone, maybe for good. We learn the attempts to erase people from the census. We talk to a senator about disappearing civil liberties. We reflect on what's been wiped out of our relationships. We hear from a COVID survivor. We examine the consciousness of community with an international futurist. We reflect on a vanishing chicken and what life was like pre-pandemic. And we try to hear and see a vanishing Rio Grande. The river was drying up. I couldn't believe that could happen. The Rio Grande? I've never seen anything about it in the news. This is No More Normal, a new show brought to you by the same crew behind URNM government. I spoke with Senator Martin Heinrich shortly after news broke that President Trump was sending federal agents to Albuquerque. We'll jump right in with Heinrich talking about the phone call he got from U.S. Attorney General Barr about the expansion of what the administration is calling Operation Legend into New Mexico's largest city. I made it clear in no uncertain terms that we did not want the Portland show coming to Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. And I will be working with local officials like the mayor and the chief of police to find every way we can to make sure that the kind of thing that we have seen in Portland is not repeated under any circumstances in our community. Do you know how long they'll be here? I do not yet. And historically, there has been a lot of cooperation between federal and local law enforcement. Mm -hmm. In this case, they weren't responding to a request. They were actually responding over the objection of local law enforcement. What is needed at this point to make sure that we don't see something similar to the chaos that we've witnessed in Portland is a very specific written agreement about what sort of assistance they can provide so that we make sure you don't have law enforcement officials in camo and body armor out on the streets of Albuquerque. That is wholly inappropriate. And much of the action that we have seen in Portland has just been blatantly illegal and unconstitutional. It is incumbent upon every elected leader in New Mexico to make sure that we do not see that in our home state and certainly not in Albuquerque. And now your colleague for Bernalillo County Sheriff Manuel Gonzalez's resignation. What role does he play in all of this? Well, he was at the White House in a photo op with the president and the attorney general uh, about law enforcement in New Mexico and coordinating with them. I just find it absolutely tone deaf that a day after the U.S. attorney says Operation Legend is going to come to Albuquerque, that the Bernalillo County Sheriff would send any message, much less pose for pictures with the president and the attorney general to say that it's okay when what they're doing in Portland is so fundamentally out of control. Mm -hmm. And that's why we need guardrails on these relationships. We need written agreements, not Oh, just trust us because we've seen what they've done. For example, the same attorney general gave the order to clear Lafayette Square in uh, Washington, D.C. of peaceful protesters. They were gassing peaceful protesters. We saw what happened to that Navy veteran in Portland who was being absolutely respectful, peaceful. He had his arm broken by a police baton and then he was sprayed in the eyes with pepper spray. Mm -hmm. We don't need any of that in our state. And what we should be doing is making it very clear to the Trump administration and to all of federal law enforcement that we want a cooperative legal relationship well within the established bounds of jurisdiction and how these different agencies are expected to behave together. Well, do you think that will matter to the Trump administration, given that the mayor and the chief of APD have made statements saying that they don't want this to happen, but it appears that the Bernalillo County Sheriff is all aboard with it? Well, I think it does matter when you don't have local support, and it's going to be up to all of us to press very hard on this administration and to make it eminently clear to them that we are not going to tolerate that kind of behavior. When the administration was effectively out of control in downtown Washington, D.C., when they started talking about deploying troops, we were able to effectively push back against that to marshal leadership from all ranks, including a lot of former military and even current military leadership who said, no, 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 
The military is to protect us from abroad. It is not the role of the military to be deployed within the United States against American citizens. We need to marshal that same sort of pushback now and make clear that Albuquerque, New Mexico is not going to be the chaotic backdrop for his reelection campaign and for some Fox News story for the next three months. Mm -hmm. I understand. And as a member of the U.S. Senate Committee on Armed Services, have you spoken to any military leaders about that attempt to institute a sort of martial law against the protesters a few weeks ago? Yes. Our committee was very engaged with many military leaders, both in terms of trying to get enough intelligence and information to understand what they had in mind, Mm -hmm. and then to find those voices who would be willing to speak out against that kind of effort. That is exactly what we need to do on the law enforcement front right now. These are not law enforcement in their normal uniforms. Their normal uniforms are meant to stand out, to show to people, this is the agency I represent, and this is who I am. Mm -hmm. And instead, they've been sent in combat fatigues with specialized weapons, with body armor, and without identification. Mm -hmm. That's a paramilitary statement. Mm -hmm. That's a statement meant to intimidate people. And that is exactly what we should not have on the streets of any American city in the run-up to an election. I've already seen statements from, for example, the Secretary of State very effectively articulating the fact that you can't have intimidation and people dressed that way and not identified and sending the wrong message in October when people are voting already. And we need to make sure that we have a safe and effective and smooth election election process. Speaking about the election process, you know, there are worries that the president may not step down if he loses the election. Using federal police in America right now is a step in that direction. Do you share those fears? Do your colleagues in the Senate share those fears about what may happen as a result of the election and how the president may act? I think we should plan for the fact that this is a president who does not respect the rule of law in many cases. But I do believe that we will see the American people send a very clear message that they are done with this kind of behavior. And when that message is not razor thin and it's overwhelming, it makes it very difficult for this president or anyone else to ignore the will of the American people. I will fight with every last breath to make sure that the will of the American people is respected in this election. Since you serve on the U.S. Joint Committee for Economic Progress in Congress, let me switch gears a little bit to funds and the economy. The relief money people are using, that extra $600 a week is about to dry up. Extra SNAP benefits are on the line. Do you think Congress will be able to keep providing those supports as the numbers go back up and businesses and states are again in the process of shutting back down? With respect to the economy, we're right back to where we were. And so the right answer is to extend what we did before and recognize that in addition to responding to this economic crisis, we need to start planning for the fact that we're in a really deep hole now. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do in addition to extending those programs is think about how we rebuild the economy on the other side of this health crisis. Mm -hmm. And not just the economy that we had six months ago, but we should rebuild a better economy, a more equitable economy. We should rebuild the economy that we want and deserve. And I think being smart about investing in infrastructure, making sure that every community is at the table, rural, tribal, small cities, large cities, We can do these things in a coronavirus response package, but we're going to need Mitch McConnell to come to the table. And heretofore, he has refused to do that. Now, speaking about the Senate majority leader, you know, the House passed a three trillion dollar relief package. McConnell says nothing more than one trillion is going to pass the Senate. Are you currently having conversations with anyone on the other side of the aisle who may understand how important this money is for people right now, particularly their own constituents? Yes, I am, and many of my colleagues are. An example of that is I'm working with one of my colleagues from Montana on a tribally focused portion of what this package would look like. Hmm. That said, what we really need is for Mitch McConnell, because frankly, he controls a lot of the votes on their side of the aisle, to be directly engaged with both the Speaker of the House and Senate leadership and the White House. That level of negotiation has not even begun because 
Mitch McConnell hasn't even put a written proposal forward to us. Mm. You know, what the House passed is very detailed. What we have from him so far are media talking points. We don't even have like a one pager with a bunch of bullets. Yeah. He has been really resistant, hoping that this would all go away. And if there's one thing we've learned, it's that wishful thinking is not science or medicine. No. We have to have policies that get COVID under control. We have to invest in the vaccines and the therapies that will move us into a long-term structural strong economy again. And we need the economic policies now to take care of the people who are desperately trying to make ends meet or keep their small business businesses alive. It really worries me that just basic healthcare, medicine, science has been called into question by this president, and we are paying a huge economic and social price for that. Yeah. Speaking about your personal worry about that, what actions will you take to prevent more people from losing their homes or going hungry during this pandemic? There are a number of approaches being discussed now for how we graduate from just a moratorium to an actual policy to sustain people in their homes. Mm -hmm. Sherrod Brown, in particular from Ohio, has been leading the charge on those efforts. That's another one of the things we would like to see included in any plan going forward. This is a moment for people to come together and sort of forget the dogma and just find ways to keep the economy intact, to keep small businesses intact, to keep people in their homes. You look around the world, there are a lot of countries that are on the other side of this. Their economies are expanding again, and they got there by embracing good policy and not just trying to wish it away. And I think we need to learn from that. I understand that. Well, with the news cycle, the way it's happening daily in 2020, I'm sure that we'll be talking again very soon. He is Senator Martin Heinrich. Senator Heinrich, thanks a lot for being with the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Executive producer Marisa DeMarco takes us to the banks of the Rio Grande for a reflection on a vanishing river. But if you hang with us until the end of today, you might find that there's hope for this lifeline in the desert. I grew up here. I maybe have kind of taken the river for granted. It's always there, always beautiful. And the forest around it is a place for me to run or walk my dogs. I see so many people out there during the pandemic enjoying the beauty. And I'm used to people making fun of the river, visitors especially joking about how it isn't so grand. I bristle, to say the least. A couple years ago, I was shocked to see a big stretch of the river just missing south of Albuquerque. It hurt. So I did what we do. I Googled it, and I found an article by Laura Paskus, a good friend, about how it's been vanishing and why. She just wrote another one for the Santa Fe Reporter called Memory of a River. I met her on the riverbank last week and had her read it to me. It was a cloudy morning and the birds were going wild. We'll hear excerpts of all that throughout the hour. Inspired by Laura's previous work, I co-composed some music for singers based on river flow data along with Dylan McLaughlin and Jessica Zeglin. You'll hear some of that throughout the hour too, and you'll also hear an original piano work meant to be paired with a river up north sent to No More Normal by composer Eric G. Nord. Here's Laura. In a crinkly government report from the 1920s, two photographs show what the Rio Grande looked like south of Socorro near the town of San Martial, the remnants and memories of which are submerged today under the sludge and sand of Elephant Butte Reservoir. Taken from a bluff above the Rio Grande, the photos show a wide, meandering river that's overflowed its channel and engulfed the lands beyond the Bosque. The glossy black and white photos are stuck to the report's pages, and the typeset words read, High Water, June 1, 1922. From time immemorial, the middle Rio Grande Valley has been subject to periodical floods that have at one time or another repeatedly submerged all of the area between its bluffs. We've changed all that. 98 years later, I'm looking at a stretch of that same river, which in Spanish reports from the 1500s is called Nuestra Señora, and I'm watching fish die in the tiny puddles still standing along the riverbank as the channel has dried and cracked into an empty sandy wash. Almost every year since 2002, when the Rio Grande has dried, I've reported on it. I've ticked through all the facts, 
how many miles are dry, why and how the climate is warming, what biologists are doing to protect rare fish as the waters heat up and evaporate. And through time, I've reported on what agencies and irrigators have done to deny, ignore, or nowadays try to alleviate the drying. Today, I'm not telling you anything new. I'm just telling you again, our river has dried. As I write this in mid-July, about 50 miles of the middle Rio Grande are dry within two stretches south of Albuquerque. Upstream in Santa Fe, the Buckman Direct Diversion may need to turn off its municipal tap from the river due to low flows. And at the end of June, the water utility in Albuquerque had to stop drawing water from the Rio Grande and switch to groundwater pumping. Also, New Mexico, Colorado, and Texas agreed in July to let the Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District use water meant for downstream users so they could avoid catastrophic crop losses. That water will need to be replaced somehow, which means next year's conditions will be even more dire. It rained last night, and even though that cool water felt miraculous on my skin, it wasn't nearly enough to revive a river and kickstart an ecosystem. So again, I'm not telling you anything new. I'm just telling you, again, our river has dried. After 27 years, Trick Lock Theater is closing its doors. The pandemic hit in the middle of their 20th annual international festival, and the blow to their finances was just too much. Let's hang out with Trick Lock collaborator Maria Aaron Jones and executive director Julie Hendren as they talk through this change from their homes. My name is Maria Aaron Jones. And I am Julie Hendren. And here we are. Here we are talking about <laughs> disappearing. Disappearing acts. Act yeah. one. Uh-huh. What happened? Yeah. <laughs> I was looking through my phone at photos recently and came across that collection of photos from those first days of the fest. It really seemed like a whole different planet we were on. And uh, yeah, it was like really getting abruptly shaken off of it. That was just four months ago. Wow. But it, <laughs> it feels so far away. It really does. I have the same thing every once in a while when I go back, like I'll look at a past Facebook post. It is really like night and day, just like the emotional place that I go to. Like thinking mm-hmm. about the kickoff party and like all of us just packed in there and, you know, like aware that, you know, there was a virus and we were all being careful, but the joy and sort of optimism and excitement about the festival and really in the grand scheme of life, like such a short time later, just a few months later to actually be literally closing the doors on the whole mm-hmm. company to go mm-hmm. from that extreme to the other is um, it's pretty intense. I've been thinking a lot about theater and what theater means, you know, Mm -hmm. like even through every plague, we've survived plagues before, us theater folk, you know, and somehow the theater always makes it back. It's funny, somebody posted something, maybe it was even today, that was something like theater arts is one of these arts that spent like 4,000 years almost dying, but never does. It just revives Mm -hmm. itself and revives itself. And I was thinking about how so much of that I think is because as artists we'll rely on each other so when one's going down we can lift the other up sort of thing. This is a time where we need theater, we need art, we need this kind of these powerful expressions of sound and stories. I feel like we're inoculating each other against tyranny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And fascism. <laughs> you know, I, f- I feel that deeply, you know, and I do think it's a healing art. When you see someone else on that stage, it is a sacred space, Uh you know? If we keep thinking about that stage and that space, we'll find a way back to it. Yeah. But I I don't have a picture of what it looks like. There's something that artists do where artists really, they spark the fire and then they share it. It goes from Mm -hmm. one village to the next village to the next village and then everybody has warmth, everybody can cook their food. This is this thing that connects us. You know, right now, the artists are having a hard time getting from one village to the next. I know we'll figure it out. I really do. I really do. But yeah, there's not a lot of fire right now. It's weird. There's not a lot of fire. And at the same time, it doesn't feel cold. 
maybe it's the the sadness <laughs> yeah. kind of keeps the air moving through my body. The sighing alone seems to <laughs> r- rem- yeah. remind me that I am indeed alive. Yeah. I miss those moments of being shoulder to shoulder and elbow to elbow, mm-hmm. you know, with people and laughing together. Yeah. You know, just being in silence in a yeah. room together. Yeah. Can you imagine the... Whew, when we are able to come together shoulder to shoulder, the release of emotion. Because I know I'm oh, yeah. <laughs> holding back so much. Like, it's just mm-hmm. too much. So I'm doing mm-hmm. that like, I will set this over here and I'll get back to it later. And so, <laughs> like, once the, like, kinesthetic response of togetherness is going to be so, like... <sighs> It's going to be bizarre. You know, I was having the thought the other day of like, oh, this is how the Roaring Twenties came along. Like, this is how it happened, that there was this war and then people came back from that. And then there was a pandemic. Yeah. And nobody could touch each other, wear masks. And then there was the Roaring Twenties and everybody's wearing, you know, short skirts and fringe. Yeah. (laughs) So now it makes sense to me. I I was missing that little part. What will COVID leave behind? What will be left on that silent stage that's going to be that spark? What are those new dances and those new movements? Totally. Yeah. Those (laughs) those new challenges going to be. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I just feel like theater is about humanity and it's our humanity. And I think if we just can hold on to that somehow, that's what I'm trying to do right now every day just kind of reminding yourself that you are human and that sounds kind of ridiculous but we're now so reliant on technology uh-huh. you know sometimes I'm watching a movie and I'm also on my phone and I'm like why am I doing this right <laughs> why am I filling every space with some kind of digital optimization <laughs> how do I you know maintain a sense of emotion I live alone I don't have anybody to bounce that off of where does all that energy go Right. Into my house plants. I think my yeah. house plants are. <laughs> yeah. I wish you would stop looking at me. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Plants, pets, everything. Even like, you know, I feel like I imbued my objects with a lot of a lot of life as it is. Just probably because like, you know, like people like us, like objects, <laughs> a tree and stuff. Everything has a life. Um, yeah. But right now it's a little ridiculous, the house, because you just make little, your community. Bit. Yeah, it's like everything. I'm like, this elephant that I got on that <laughs> one trip is now my best friend and will sit with Hello. me. Yeah. Hello, <laughs> elephant. You're so cute. Well, it was fun to talk to you, yeah, Julie. You I miss you so much. I miss you too. So many thanks to Julie Hendren and Maria Aaron Jones of TrickLock for letting us hang out with them. Over the past week, we asked people, what is gone from COVID that you're happy to see go? We got one call. That was from Vanessa Bowen, who did our fantastic graphics. Here's what she had to say. Hey, Marisa and Khalil. It's Vanessa Bowen. I just saw the post about goodbye and good riddance. Well, I would have to thank COVID for the fact that there are less people on the road driving. This provides the most opportune time at night to ride your bike in peace. And sometimes during the day, the roads are practically clear and it makes it seem safer to get on your bicycle and ride. So thank you, COVID. I can ride my bicycle without wild, crazy maniacs trying to push me off the road. (laughs) We're back on the riverbank with Laura Paskus. On the first day of June 2020, I peered down into the undulating sands of the Rio Grande from the edge of the Highway 380 bridge in San Antonio, New Mexico. Before heading back to my truck and driving to a different spot, I heard a wet glug. The noise came from a spot where 13 months earlier, I'd seen the biggest beaver I have ever seen. Following the line of small silvery fish shining flat in the sand, it took a few seconds for my eyes to focus on the interweave of light and shadow at the edge of the channel. There, a golden-scaled carp was trying to flip over in the mud. Its refuge puddle had evaporated in the morning's 90-degree heat. I snapped a few pictures, and I left the bridge. This is normal. It's normal for New Mexico's largest river to dry. Not every summer, but more summers than not since the mid to late 1990s. According to records from across the state, New Mexico's average annual temperature has increased by about three degrees Fahrenheit just in the past 50 years. Globally, April was the warmest April on record. 
NOAA forecasts that 2020 will be one of the five warmest years on record, and there's a 75% chance it'll be the warmest year since scientists began tracking global temperatures in the 1880s. Warm conditions in the already warm, already arid Southwest affect forests, orchards, wildlife, rivers, everything. Because when it's warmer, plants need more water. People use more water and rivers, they lose more water even when we're not in a drought. Do you remember 2018? That year, the Rio Grande dried in April. Typically over the past two decades, it's dried at the start of irrigation season, when its waters are diverted into ditches and canals. But two years ago, that early spring drying happened right when the river should have been ripping with spring snow melt. Then the winter of 2018 and 2019 boomed. Spring waters roared down the Rio Grande, filling up side channels excavated to slow waters for rare fish and restoration projects. These are things that we built to mimic the river we destroyed when we hoisted up dams and filled up reservoirs for farms and cities, and when we straightened and channelized stretches of the river so they no longer braided and meandered. The spring of 2019 was marvelous to behold, especially after the previous spring, summer, and fall, when the state's largest reservoir, Elephant Butte, dropped to 3% capacity. It was that spring when a friend and I saw that fat, happy beaver grab some willow leaves, flip over, and float off downstream under the San Antonio Bridge. This June, staring down at the dead and dying fish, I wondered where that beaver was. I wondered how and where it found water, and I wondered what happened to its spring kits. Local comedian Sarah Kennedy shared a story with us about a disappearing act that almost ran afoul. So the story is from the before times, and it is so before timesy. Uh, it also has to do with disappearing, but I just wanted to put this out there that uh, this story could in no way happen right now. Uh, so in a way, an experience like this has also disappeared. I am the least competitive person that I know. I am probably the least competitive person on earth, unless there was, of course, somebody else who wanted that title and then they could have it. I don't need it. I am so not competitive that I had to quit softball when I was little because my parents had an intervention with me where they told me that I was boring to watch. I had to quit basketball when I was little because my own team would steal the ball from me. I just don't have it in my bones to compete. Okay, so you were like that kid on the court who would get the ball and just stand there and the rest of your team is like, Sarah, do something. And you're like, I'd rather not. In movies and stuff, as soon as like the kid gets the ball, they kind of go like top of the key, and they kind of have some like strategy time, you know, where you decide like when you're gonna pass it. It did not happen in a real game, and they just would come up and be like, you know what, we don't have time for this, and just take the ball. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Also, in soccer, I was always the goalie because I just wasn't real good at running. Nice. Um, uh, but I like to put on events that feature friendly competition. I love to host trivia, bingo. Some of my favorite things to do are like Mario Kart tournaments. And really, if I can introduce an element of charity to the competition, then it's like a quadruple whammy for me because it's fun. Everybody else gets a chance to be competitive and fight for something. But in the end, it, you know, it's going toward a good cause, and we're all here to have fun. So it's like competition for a cause. Yeah, exactly, because I think it lowers the stakes, too. Like, you don't, there's nothing to take personal. It's all for fun, and it's all for a good cause. That's yeah, it. I like that. All of this came together in this event that I was able to throw when I lived in Brooklyn, New York, called the Chicken Chase. If you've never heard of the Chicken Chase, I will explain to you what the Chicken Chase is. Does it involve a real chicken? No. Were you expected to run during any part of this? Absolutely not, uh, but it's still called a chicken chase. So if you signed up for the chicken chase, what you had to do is bring $20 with you. That got split in half. Half of it went to the prize pot and half of it went to charity. And then everybody had to put their name in a bucket. And right before we kicked off the full chicken chase, we pull a name from the bucket and whoever's name gets pulled then has to put on a full chicken costume. We're talking head with the beak, 
and little footy pieces, and then they'd go disappear into the night with the prize money, and they get to pick whatever bar or restaurant is within the vicinity of the neighborhood, sit there, and then just start drinking with the money in the prize pot. You can also get some food, too. In fact, it was encouraged. Then what happens is everybody else has to go on a search for the chicken, peeking into every bar and restaurant along the way, supporting them. It's a nice pub crawl situation, you know? And then uh, as soon the first team to find the chicken gets the rest of the prize money. So the, the key is to find the chicken as quickly as possible. And the nice thing is, chicken gets to pick the charity. So you know, it's worth it to be the chicken. Free drinks, free food, free good cause. We've got more of this story coming your way. In the next 30 minutes, we take a look at the attempts to erase undocumented immigrants from the census and what the impacts of that would mean for us all. Stick around and don't disappear, okay? No More Normal is brought to you by your New Mexico government, a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and the Santa Fe Reporter. Funding for our coverage comes from the New Mexico Local News Fund, the Kellogg Foundation, and KUNM listeners like you. Support for public media provided by the Thornburg Foundation. Uh, the day that we put on the chicken chase, everybody met at this bar called the Diamond in Greenpoint. And Greenpoint was particularly perfect for this because there's a lot of industrial buildings in between restaurants and bars. So the game could really have gone on for a long time. The name we pulled was for my friend Lisa. Maybe the best person that could have ended up being the chicken. If she hadn't been the chicken, she would have been like the best, most excited chicken searcher. So another element of the chicken chase is that because I'm throwing the event, I know where the chicken's about to go and I have to take their phone from them. So when I say that Lisa disappeared, I'm, I mean it. She was out on her own, dressed as a chicken. We had to wait 30 minutes before I could let everybody else go. Once I had everybody leave the building to go and try to find her out in the neighborhood, I got my stuff together and then I sneakily went to the location where I know Lisa had been running as a chicken. I cannot stress to you enough how this was less than an hour, maybe an hour total, because it was the half an hour waiting period and then a half an hour for me to get everything organized and for me to be able to sneak off without other people seeing me. When you took this weird route, did you like intentionally walk the opposite direction that you mm -hmm. naturally would have? You went down an alley? <laughs> You backed up a little bit, hit behind a dumpster, that type of thing? Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. I just kind of went to the tunnel. And in that time, she had had so many drinks. The funny part of it was she hadn't even touched the prize money yet because as soon as she showed up, showed up, showed up. Saturday afternoon at this bro bar. It's like packed with guys who work in finance and guys who work for startups and just like whatever kind of bro dudes want a day drink that this is where she's at and she's hiding dead in the middle of the bar. But she doesn't have her chicken hat on anymore and I can see that she's a uh, drunk already. And so when I finally get to her and I'm like, hey, how about you wear your hat? She is like, I have to pee so bad. And she runs off goes to the bathroom, comes back, and then tells me this incredible story. That's got to be tough in the chicken suit. Yeah, I mean, it's a big, it's a, it's a big ordeal. In a, <laughs> in a hurry, too, you know, when you're <laughs> about to become completely drunk. Like, I've been yeah. there a couple times where you're at that edge and you're like, okay, I know this is going to hit me. I don't know if it's five minutes. I don't know in 15 minutes, but I know it's going to be an ordeal. As soon as I saw her and I, I could see the desperation in her eyes, I was like, okay, this poor chicken girl has got to get to the restroom. While she was sitting there, bro after bro, after bro came over to her and they wanted to take a picture with the chicken. They wanted to buy the chicken drinks. So she had made just round after round of shots also disappear while she was missing. And she hadn't even touched the prize money yet. It was the full envelope of cash because more people wanted to buy her drinks than she needed to buy drinks. It was perfect. And so then I think it was maybe another hour later where I was just watching all of this happen and trying to like take a couple drinks for her and just make sure she was safe because she had also been taking a huge break from drinking and this has been like her return to it. And oh, so wow. I was like, oh, dang. Oh my God, that that's kind of like breaking your fast, um, <laughs> going to an all-you-can-eat buffet. We had a rule where to support all the local businesses, if you were going to go inside the place to look for the chicken, you had to order a drink oh. before you left. So all these people were like trying to like duck in and out of places, but then they had to do like, you know, the fastest drink that they could do there too. So they were all shooting shots. 
at like two o'clock in the afternoon. So then by the time the team found her, they had all been drinking, she had been drinking, and then all the other teams just kind of fell in and they had all been drinking even longer than the other people. The prize money didn't even get spent on any drinks at all. It just all went <laughs> to like Uber fares and hopefully breakfast the next morning. So you had all these team members drunk, you had the chicken drunk, and you're sober. Well, I'm starting to get, you know, I had to, I mean, I had to keep it together to do a good job hosting. Mm-hmm. And we were able to donate about mm, $400 or so to the charity that she picked, which was for animal rights. Can't get any more chickeny or chasey than that. So I still have the chicken suit in my costume trunk here at the house. And I still have hope that things are going to even in their new normal, come to a space where I'm able to throw this event here locally, safely again. I just hope that sometime soon I can dress somebody else up in a chicken suit and send them to disappear into the night for charity. With me on the line now to talk about the erasure of undocumented immigrants from the population count is Isaac DeLuna. He's the communications director for the Center for Civic Policy. Isaac, good morning to you. How you doing? Morning. Thank you for having me. Let's get to it. There's there's a lot going on right now with some of the news is really getting buried. And the president just issued an executive order this week about the census. Tell us, what does that executive order do? Right. So basically what the unconstitutional executive order is trying to do is it's trying to erase immigrant communities from being counted for redistricting purposes. And redistricting is the process that happens after the census count happens. That is when district maps are redrawn for local, state and federal representation. Mm -hmm. So this is really a move by the federal government to skew political power in one way. Uh, And in this time, it is very clearly trying to affect and make sure that communities of color and immigrants in this country are not counted, are not represented. And in a way, this executive order is really trying to redefine what constitutes a person, even Mm -hmm. under the Constitution. Mm, Can you explain a little bit more about that? Right. So currently the Constitution is very clear that the census is to make sure to count every person living in the U.S. as well as to ensure that every person living in the U.S. has representation in government. Now, what the Trump administration is trying to do is trying to redefine, right, who is a person under the law, which to them is only considering those who are citizens of the country. And that is going directly against what the Constitution intended, which is to really create a democracy that represents everyone who is living in the United States. Mm -hmm. The CEO of your organization called the move racist and said it could be harmful as we endure the pandemic and then work to rebuild. Break all that down for me. Right. So we know that a lot of the census data that is used across the country is used in many different ways, right? Not only for the distribution of political power or representation, but also in the distribution of funding, right, that is essential when it comes to education, healthcare, uh, infrastructure, and still being in a pandemic. We are counting on every single federal dollar that we can get through the census to ensure that our state has that funding Mm. to really begin the recovery process. We also know that census data is even used to determine how many vaccines are needed, right? Once a vaccine hopefully is developed for this pandemic, that census data is so important that it is even used to figure out the number of distribution uh, for vaccines and also the funding that is needed, once again, for our healthcare workers, for our healthcare institutions, which we all know are completely essential during this time. When is the census due? You still have time to fill out the census until October 31st. But if you have received a package or an invitation from the U.S. Census, make sure to do so today, right? Or before the end of the week, you can complete your census online by going to my2020census.gov. You can do it over the phone or you can do it by returning uh, the paper questionnaire that could have come into in the mail. Mm-hmm. Or if you still don't have a, an opportunity to fill it out, there will be a census worker coming to your door asking you to complete your census right there and then. It is easy, it is only 10 questions. And if you all have any questions, you all can reach out to us at the Center for Civic Policy. We are on Facebook, you can message us and we can provide you with assistance. 
working hard to make sure everybody is counted. That's Isaac DeLuna, Center for Civic Policy. He's the communications director. Isaac, thanks again for being with me. Yeah, thank you so much. To talk about the disappearance of some things that are happening maybe in our relationships, I'm on the line with Dr. Gerald Chavez. He is a clinical psychologist out here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Dr. Chavez, thanks for being with me. No problem. Looking forward to it. Tell me about your background as a therapist. What type of clients do you normally work with? I work with a wide range of clients, actually. I work with, for instance, today I saw two adolescents and uh, five adults, ranging from I had some marital issues with one of them, some uh, trying to figure out how to navigate school now that we're going to be going through these hybrid systems, substance abuse, depression, PTSD, and right now, anxiety. It's been interesting. I've been getting calls from patients I discharged three years ago who are now re-experiencing various forms of anxiety as a result of the COVID and the shutdown and all of these different things. So quite a wide range of clients. So some close friends of mine were, it just dawned upon them in the last few weeks that we are in this for probably a year, maybe more, looks like. Exactly. And are you seeing people lose patience as they recognize that we are in this for much longer than a few months as originally thought? Correct. And there are so many variables around that. For example, people who are now stuck at home, it starts to get really old. You remember when uh, a while back, maybe about a month ago, and everybody decided, okay, this is over, man, we're done, whether it's Memorial Day or the 4th of July. And we become very, very complacent with some of these behaviors that we really need to do. And it's very simple to do them on one level. On the other hand, when complacency, boredom, anger takes over, and you know, you want to always throw the politics in it because that's oftentimes what's happening. And so what we do is we find the things that match our distortions so we can then follow through on a behavior that makes us feel good, which may be go to the bar, which may be Go to the beach. If we can just let people know that our goal is not to punish people, but the goal is really to save lives. And how do we do that? Well, because we have to basically adhere to what the experts are saying, get in for the long haul, realize that we need to do what we're doing to save lives. You know, we know it's not necessarily good or bad when a relationship ends, but how do you help people get through this stuff on top of everything else? And what are some keys of them to remain amicable with each other so things don't become insidious and dirty? Well, at this point, what I suggest is, if possible, do not make any decisions that are highly motivated or affected by the COVID and the shutdown. If you're making decisions around that, Let's hope this doesn't continue to be be the norm. But if you're making decisions around that and then after it's over and you settled in, we thought, oh, wow, I'm not around that person as much. I still love that person. Don't make any rash decisions at this point in time. Now, if you need to kind of get away from each other, and that's something that just really needs to happen. Now, if there's any domestic violence, if there's any abuse or something going on, then that's something that needs to take place and needs to be dealt with directly do not make any rash decisions during this thing because we are functioning on on so many variables that are out of our control the intimacy in the couple may stop or may decrease now because somebody is possibly do we know if they're asymptomatic or not so the intimacy may break down and then depending on who's living in the house there are grandparents living in the house or other kids or stepkids or whatever. There are a lot of things we have to juggle in the air at the same time right now. And finally, let me ask you, this show is called No More Normal. The normal we knew is gone. But that also means that whatever people were planning for the future, that is gone as well. That can give people a sense of instability, which is often debilitating. How can people handle those type of feelings? A term that I often use with my clients is whenever possible, just do a checkup from the neck up. (laughs) Okay, what I mean by that is sometimes our gut is telling us something or our tension might be in our chest. And so if we stop and sort of hold on to the fact, I believe as a cognitive behavioral therapist, that thoughts are creating the emotions. If we can understand that 
anything that we doubt, we challenge, and anything that we have as a strength, we validate that in us and in other people. And that will give us the opportunity to grow. But we can't stop growing. He's Dr. Gerald Chavez, clinical psychologist. I want to thank you for helping myself and our listeners give ourselves a checkup from the neck up. Thanks a lot. This is No More Normal. I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. Listen live on Sundays at 11 a.m. on KUNM or download the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And it's on the Internet. Look us up at KUNM.org. We've been hearing from environmental reporter Laura Paskus throughout the show, whose piece, Memory of a River, appeared in the Santa Fe Reporter this week. She brings us more of that story now. Initially, when it dries, the Rio Grande can feel like a raucous, busy place. The dying fish thrash and glug and splash, and the birds seem manic with song. But things quiet down pretty quickly. This year, when I returned to the dry riverbed three days later, it was quiet except for the flies. In 2002, I met some fisheries biologists. We used to drink a lot of beer and whiskey and we'd talk about books. And I would listen when they talked about their work on the Rio Grande. The river was drying up. I couldn't believe that could happen. The Rio Grande? I'd never seen anything about it in the news. If the state's largest river were drying, I'm sure that would have been newsworthy. Now the river dries so regularly, it's not newsworthy anymore. It's normal, just like those floods were normal more than a century ago. I read about floods of great magnitude between 1870 and 1890. It flooded in the 1920s and the 1940s. That 1947 report is all about the need for development to control floods. The urgency of the language in the report strikes me. People were not messing around back then. The drying of the Rio Grande, despite how accustomed most of us have become to ignoring it or dismissing it, represents a vast transformation. And we are caught within the chain of conversions. It's a transformation that we're responsible for on so many different levels. We colonized this river, we stole its floods. We pinned them back behind diversions and dams. We built reservoirs to retain water and attract Anglo farmers and settlements. We sucked away the river's waters from its channel to foist it upon dry soils, onion, alfalfa, and pecans. And if you think I'm using the word colonize too freely, remember that as recently as the 1970s, the sacred lands and the farm fields of the Pueblo of Cochiti were nabbed and then sacrificed to a reservoir to protect Albuquerque from floods. Despite outcries from many tribal members, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers built Cochiti Reservoir between 1965 and 1975. If you look at the reports, it says the Pueblo lost about 30,000 acres. What that really means is they lost farmlands, hunting grounds, sacred places, ancestral grounds, connections to their past, and they lost their own stretch of the Rio Grande. We also coughed and spat up so many greenhouse gases that the climate changed. The globe just heated up. Australia ignites, the Amazon ignites. In many places, including within our own state, the future will become uninhabitable. In some places because of rising seas, but in others, like our state, they'll simply be too hot and too dry for humans to survive. The pandemic drags on and it becomes harder and harder to keep in the forefront of our minds what people are actually facing. For our partner, New Mexico PBS, Megan Kamrick spoke with artist Gwen Samuels, who survived COVID-19, about what it was like for her. Gwen, thank you so much for joining us. COVID-19 rang close to home for you. You contracted the virus and you ended up in the hospital for a couple of weeks. Can you describe what symptoms you had? The first thing was that I developed a fever, and then I completely lost my appetite. I couldn't eat anything except for I could eat tangerines for a while, and then I would eat ice chips, but I I really couldn't handle any food. I started to feel sort of uh, lethargic. like I just felt that I was sort of losing my consciousness little by little. And that actually was happening because when I got to the hospital, they said that my pulse oxygen was 53. The lowest that it should be is 88. So I was kind of on the verge of brain damage. 
And that's kind of how COVID is that you're, you're really so sick, but you don't think that you are. My daughter was continually asking me, mom, are you having trouble breathing? Are you having trouble breathing? And I kept saying, no, no, I'm fine. Did you experience any of the delirium that we've been hearing about? Yes, absolutely. Once my fever went up to about 103, I was really delirious. Actually, I really feel like I had a near-death experience, hearing vibrations. A voice told me that there were prayers, that there were people praying for me. And I could hear my grandchildren calling me when I was intubated. How long were you in the hospital? 23 days. Oh, my goodness. The hospital, I was at Presbyterian Rust in Rio Rancho. They took me there on the evening of March 31st. And from the time I got out of the van and into the wheelchair, they rolled me in. I don't remember anything for the next eight days. They intubated me and I was in a medically induced coma for those eight days. I guess they started to see that I was breathing on my own. So when I woke up, I was intubated for two more days. They kept me in the ICU, the COVID ICU for five more days. After I tested negative twice, they sent me to the regular unit and I was there for seven more days. Mm. How's your recovery going? It's going marvelously well, actually. When I came home from the hospital, I wasn't able to do anything. I was in a wheelchair. I wasn't able to, you know, take care of myself, do any of my bathing and grooming. And I couldn't cook. I was on oxygen for 24-7. I couldn't walk. But within a week's time, I I got up out of the wheelchair and I started walking with the walker. And then probably a week or so after that, I started walking around with a cane. Maybe like a month or month and a half into the recovery, I was able to walk around on my own. Eventually, my oxygen intake was kind of more normalized and I was able to take off the oxygen for short periods and start cooking. And I also had physical therapists and nurses that would come in every week and they helped me so much. I mean, they just really helped me so much with my breathing exercises. One thing I'm discovering is, and I'm reading from other people who have experienced this, is that recovery from COVID is not linear. You know, you can have a lot of progress and then all of a sudden you'll have a setback, then progress again, maybe another setback. It's kind of up and down. As a survivor of COVID-19, what's the one takeaway that you want people to understand? I guess no one is immune um, to the virus to follow the precautions. If you're estranged from family members, it's very important to have support, a support network to try and reinstitute that love and also faith you know, prayer and faith, and and eat well, okay? Eat really, really well. Gwen, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. Thank you. Many thanks to our partner, New Mexico PBS, for sharing this with us today. Pura Chandri is a futurist and the founder and CEO of Agahi, a nonprofit that creates sustainable media structures that raises the bar of content standards and aims to create knowledge-based communities. She joins me from Islamabad, Pakistan. Here is our conversation in progress as she responds to a question I had about the disappearance of people's trust in the media. They actually have given space to, it's not a word though, but I would say untruths. Mm-hmm. So a lot of untruths have taken place because a lot of media organizations have given such a space. I look at how information is consumed through different generations. There is a generation that would still read print media. Then there is a generation that would actually use web browser to actually look up news. And then there is a generation that actually relies on Facebook as a source of information. I would think that people are becoming smarter. Why I say this, but at least the the kids that I work with in Pakistan, for instance, they usually would really call you out if you say something incorrect or not factual. So you have a lot of young people here in this country that would simply call you out. I think some folks are a little bit depressed because they have no idea of what they are facing in the future. There's a, a lot of uncertainty. What type of effect do you think that has on a culture? Yeah, yeah, I think this is a very important point. We need more mental health professionals now talking more than ever. Mm. 
in mainstream media. We don't see that. For instance, because I'm a foresight practitioner, for me, uncertainties are as certain as possible, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't affect me in any way. But a lot of people are being affected in the sense that they're going through this depressive uh, phases. And I think that would be a huge challenge for governments all over the world because you don't see that you don't see the governments talking about mental health. Where do you see that going if, if governments do not begin to talk about mental health on a national and global scale? We should be more concerned now more than ever about those people who are getting unemployed. Because that is a crisis that would lead into mental health. And then you have very extreme cases. Ideally, by January, Feb, you would have governments talk about well-being. In fact, I have this feeling that having a strong immunity would be what the governments would start considering mm-hmm. as, as, as in, in health care. I do speak to sometimes my family in the U.S. They barely talk about immunity. But when I speak to my family here in Pakistan, all of them would be like, you know, you got to eat this fruit or you got to have these dry fruits or something like that just to enhance your immunity and to build resilience. It's tragic that people haven't started, the governments haven't started talking about this. I mean, they should. But next year, we're going to see a lot more conversation around well-being. How can someone adjust their thinking to recognize that the normal that they were experiencing in January and February is no longer there? There's going to be something new. How can people adjust their beings and their minds? That's a very fascinating question. At least the community that I'm part of, we've gone into self-reflection. So there is a lot of introspection which is happening. For instance, I realized there are so many things that were useless. I don't know why I was doing it. What was considered productive in early January is no longer considered productive today. So how do you adapt to those things? It's like you've got to find more meaning in your life. So purpose and meaning. You know, you have these inspirational speakers, these motivational speakers. You need more of those people yes, so that people can find meaning in their life lives Mm. because you have entertainment and then you have education and then you have jobs right yes and technically this is how your life revolves around if you map your 24 hours a day you would actually see that for eight hours you're working out of which you probably uh, take a break for two hours or one hour Mm -hmm. but you're working eight hours and then you think like exactly what did you do in those eight hours? Mm -hmm. You know, what was so important? People are beginning to realize that. I think reading is coming back. Either they've gotten too bored of the entertainment world. Yes. I think there's the limit to how much Netflix and Amazon one can see. (laughs) These are strange times for people who found meaning in things that otherwise kept them away from themselves, actually. Yes. So how much of myself would I know about me, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. And then the questions like, who exactly are you? Your name, your religion, your family. So you start to think along those lines. Why am I committing two hours of my life over something that doesn't make me happy? What I'm seeing here in the United States, that question that you just mentioned, people are asking, who am I exactly? Well, we've had COVID-19 and the shutdown for people to begin to ask themselves that question. Then a few months ago, George Floyd, as I'm sure you may have heard, was murdered by the police in Minneapolis. That had sparked an uprising, not only in America, but in many parts of the world about racial justice. I see it as human justice. Either you're about the equality of all human beings or you're not. That ability to have those introspective moments have given people, let's just say, the impetus to get out there and to make those statements, to get out there and to protest. People who may not have had the same situation occurred a year ago. This is so interesting you're saying this. I was talking to one of the doctors yesterday and in my conversation, I said, like, we are still primitive. For instance, if you see a type of flower you would see many variations, right? Mm -hmm. So there are going to be so many different kind of the same species. So you're going to have variations. We have limited ourselves to understanding maybe there are only three genders or two gender or five genders. I mean, we've not really evolved our way of thinking in a manner how things are moving. So it was a difficult conversation yesterday. 
But I just wanted to assess like how many people would see gender as in just within two to three categories or would actually have the imagination to look at more genders. And when you talk about racial justice or human responsibility, I just don't understand because um, at least in Islam, there is this sermon which I usually quote. Prophet Muhammad says that no Arab will have precedence over non-Arab and vice versa. Basically, from what he was coming from, was based preaching equality. Mm -hmm. One should ask this question. Would I choose the same thing for my friend that I would choose for myself? Mm. So if your answer is like, it's the same, so you don't have those biases. But a lot of people have those biases. They would prefer something for themselves, but something else for the other person. Yes. Then it goes back to your education. In your education, you're not being taught that we're all equal, Mm -hmm. right? So at the end of the day, we have the same organs, Mm -hmm. almost, that help us function. When you try and sort of dissect such a thing, then you begin to see the, it's a very dark world. Mm. You, you begin to see the ugly stuff, the, the case about what happened, what the police officers did, you know, mm-hmm. one would consider like, OK, if this was to happen to me, how would I have reacted? Do you get it? Mm-hmm. Not many people are thinking, what if this happens to me? Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're living in times that anything could happen to anyone. Why, why do you think th- there is um, a very short attention span here in the united states yeah why do you think that is because i usually when i'm talking to friends in dc Mm -hmm. i'm usually like your policies are like hollywood style the movie would go on for three hours and then you'd change it so if the policies are like that whereas if you look at at least the neighborhood where people don't view themselves as um, citizens you know they view themselves as civilization And that's a completely different way of thinking. Explain that. When you really embrace deep histories, you tend to have this capacity to have a very vivid imagination. So when you do have that, you are more grounded. You'll see a lot of people, like some people are very humble. Yeah. Right. And then you'll meet someone who's completely moronic and you're like, what's up with this person? understanding how does the other person becomes humble. I think that is something I personally have learned from traveling within Pakistan. To add to that and answer your question, you know, we here in America are not taught to be humble. In the essence, the ethos of get yours, get whatever you want to get, be damned anyone else, be damned if anyone has anything to say about what you get. Get yours by any means. I think it's a mixture of the ethos of capitalism, mm. a a not well-rounded education, not understanding civics of how the government works, not getting a an understanding of of actual history. People are given partial history through the education system and through entertainment. They're given another partial history as well. And people are thinking that they understand what it is. There's also this homogenous worldview Many Americans, when they speak of the world, they don't mean the world. They don't mean to talk about the people in Islamabad. They're not talking about the people in Nigeria. They're talking about Americans only in their own personal world. We're raised and taught to live in these bubbles. Everything starts and ends with the individual outside of community in most circles. And people who break out of that, it takes a lot of time for them to break out of that. You know, if you were fortunate enough to be raised in a community and a family that has those ethos, then great, you can go forward. But what I'm seeing now as a result of COVID and this introspection, people are recognizing that I need community. I cannot survive on my own, not survive as merely as a means of, you know, sustenance and eating and sleeping, but more of a survive mentally, survive spiritually. People are are now drawing together in that manner. So this is uh, this is very important what you just said. People are moving towards the spiritual aspect, the mystic aspect of their lives. And I think it's it's a very unique time in history. Mm. So if you imagine 2022, if you see 2020, we're heading towards the end of July. Yeah. So half of the year is gone. And my question usually is like, do you recall the last six months? Mm. Yes. We've stopped living in being a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday 
five o'clock, six o'clock. We've stopped living like that. Yeah. So we're not being analog. We're not being digital. What type of effect do you think that will have on people in this non-analog, uh, non-digital world? Oh, I think if they find meaning and they find purpose during this, I think they'll be the happiest people. Mm -hmm. I mean, eventually, if you look at it, everything boils down to people needing to be happy. If people figure out that there are things in their lives that are not making them happy, imagine the kind of introspection that would go in. Mm -hmm. So if the Americans or, or, or the average Americans are really confined to just their own state and their way of living, and one day they find out that, hello, there's a rest of the world also, mm -hmm. where there is Italy, where there is France, where there is Hungary, Russia, you, you have all these things, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So if you don't broaden as Pakistanis and Indians, I think uh, Pakistanis and Indians especially, we're very lucky because we travel the world. We explore as many societies as possible. Mm. And we like going to new places. We're at the end of the show with some final thoughts from environmental journalist Laura Paskus about the Rio Grande. Early in my reporting career, I thought there were good guys and there were bad guys. I thought that if I researched hard enough and asked enough questions and talked to enough people, I'd find one agency, one person, one action to blame. Now I know it's the system in its entirety, the system we built to transform the desert, encourage and sustain white settlement, and provide certainty to our cities and our ways of life. I want to point out bad guys here and now, but the truth is the people working on these issues are the ones who care the most, who worry about rain and snow, and who've likely given up a lot of personal happiness to meetings and reports, arguments, litigation, and agreements. Over nearly two decades of reporting on this, I've seen how agencies and people have changed and how hard people work to cooperate. How federal, state, local, and tribal agencies, as well as some conservationists, work together to try to meet everyone's needs and to jiggle water in the system to try to keep some in the river. But we can't keep pretending that everyone's needs can be met. We can't keep hoping for a robust winter and hardy snowpack. And we can't keep hoping next year the reservoirs will fill. This isn't a eulogy. Believe it or not, it's actually a love letter. Every news story I've reported on the Rio Grande has been a love story. I've laid out the facts, I've asked you to see our river, and I've secretly implored each and every one of you to love our river. Love can coast with medians and average the regulated flows, but there's banality in trudging through days unrecognizable from one another. There's a certain dullness to water that's moved from one reservoir to the next, depending on who needs it, what lawsuit is pending, what capacity there is for volume, and what tolerance we have as a society for dry riverbeds, extinct fish species, and dead cottonwood forests. And bouncy spring flows, however, there is wild, mad love. And I've learned there's love in the bitter quiet of a sandy river channel. We've trapped this river by our needs and within our laws. We've trapped this river by clinging to a colonial past, by failing to heed warnings, and by lacking the imagination to change. But Nuestra Senora, I know that she still has tricks up her sleeve. I've listened to her voice, and she will outlast us all. Next week, we talk about the presence of federal police in Albuquerque and cities across the U.S. and what that means when it comes to the erosion of rights and civil liberties. Next week on No More Normal. We want to thank all of our guests for joining us this week. Laura Paskus and the Santa Fe Reporter for the lovely piece of journalism slash poetry. Julie Hendren and Maria Aaron Jones of Tricklock. Sarah Kennedy of Little League softball fame. Shout out and thanks to Jeremy Jasper and the crew at Olaud Records, as well as Dom Life for hooking us up with music for the show. Kaki, Pope Yes Yes Y'all, and Bigawatt composed some of the show's themes. Artist Nicholas Jacobson for providing artwork for the show's post, which you can find online at KUNM.org. Artist Leslie Grandahill and the 516 Arts for more art from their show about resilience. Available on their virtual gallery, which you can scope at 516museumfromhome.org. 
Thank you to the composers Eric G. Nord, Dylan McLaughlin, Jessica Ziegland, and yes, Marisa DeMarco for the river music. Socially distant high fives to Kaveh Movahead and Bryce Dix who jumped in on the editing. What does no more normal mean to you? Hit us up at yournmgov at gmail.com. Thank you as always to all of our guests for sharing their stories, lives, and perspectives. No More Normal is executive produced by Marisa DeMarco. It's hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Khalil Lake Alona. For everyone here at Nomono, thanks for listening.